Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friend? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Hey, we got a great episode for you today. I literally just finished recording. I was like, I gotta, I gotta, I'm gonna do the intro right now because it was, uh, it was just so good, so good. You guys are going to love this today. Now, uh, before we get to today's guest, let me remind you, if, if you'd like to work with us and have us help you in your speaking business, then we'd love to have a conversation with you, learn a little bit more about your speaking business, what you're looking for, where you feel stuck, where you need help, and uh, how we can help you to build and grow your speaking business, how to, how to help you create a repeatable system to help you find and book paid speaking gigs. So if you'd like to have that conversation, we'd love to chat with you. So feel free to stop by thespeakerlab.com slash apply. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash apply. There you can learn more about our Booked and Paid to Speak Elite Program, which is a training program where uh, we get in the trenches with you and help you find and book paid speaking gigs. All right, so check that out again by going over to thespeakerlab.com slash apply. All right, so today we're going to be talking with Josh McGee. Now, Josh is a guy who's an event planner. He's been in the event planning space for quite some time. As you'll hear, he has booked a wide range of speakers ranging from a few thousand dollars to $30,000, $40,000 and everything in between. So he puts on a, several conferences and events a year in the, uh, the, the nonprofit space. And so you're going to hear all about that. We're going to talk through just the journey that he and his team go through to select speakers, what it is that they're looking for, what is one of the most important things that he is looking for, the thing that if you don't have this, he will immediately click off and go elsewhere. So what is that thing that he is looking for? We talk about what you could be doing when you're working together with the uh, client that makes you more referable, makes them want to work with you more in the future. Just a really, really good, just some great insights from the other side of the table with an event planner. So uh, let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Josh McGee. Enjoy. Hey friends, Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today we are joined by Josh McGee, and Josh is a uh, event planner and uh, has had has booked many many speakers over the years. Worked with a variety of different speakers, and so we're going to talk about it from uh, the other side of the event planning space and what that what that looks like. And as someone that hires a lot of speakers, what he looks for and some of the experiences and, and knowledge that he can share with us. So, Josh, thanks for taking a few minutes to chat with us today. Absolutely, Grant. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. So let's start by giving us a quick context here. Tell us a little bit about your role, what you do on the event planning side, and what you do in terms of your work with speakers. Sure. So I work with Touchstone Energy Cooperatives, which is a national network of electric utilities, specifically those who are not-for-profit, those who are owned by the members that they serve. Uh, we have about 750 in our Touchstone Energy network, and uh, each cooperative is different. We have a little saying that if you've met one cooperative, you've met one cooperative. Each community <laughs> is different. and each a cooperative, you know, has sometimes as few as 15 to 20 employees. 
up to several thousand, depending on their size and how many folks that they're serving. Collectively, we serve 42 million, uh, mostly rural Americans in areas that were not served by electricity and cooperatives uh, have helped fill that gap in. So what we do here at the national level, and a lot of my role is to help put on conferences and events for the 72,000 cooperative employees that are in 47 states. And so the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, NRECA, is our parent umbrella trade association. In collaboration with Touchstone Energy, we put on about 14 major conferences each year and uh, dozens of other events in between. And those sizes range from a conference of maybe 200 all the way to 8,000 at our annual meeting, which usually eats up a convention center. And in previous years, about 33 hotels or so our members come in. And so it's a a lot of range of needs for those cooperative conferences, I should say. Uh, And it's also a lot of different roles and agendas on those events. Yeah, sounds like it. So, so it sounds like you've got 14 main conferences and events that you do, but you mentioned you've got a bunch of, of it sounds like maybe smaller regional conferences throughout the course of the year. So in the course of any given year, do you have a, kind of a ballpark or guesstimate how many speakers that you might hire? Oh my goodness, our meeting and event planning team, our, our project team leads on those conferences. I mean, it's going to be hundreds. Wow. Yeah, hundreds annually. And a lot of them are going to come internally within our network from those 47 states at the statewide level, the local level. Some uh, national sister affiliate organizations will help provide some of that content. But as you know, keynoters are very important. They're going to be the ones who set the tone at the onset of your conference, and they're the ones who are going to end it. In fact, the keynote speakers, you know, the ones that you're paying to be there and have high expectations for are going to be the ones that determine what are people talking about at that evening reception. So they are critical. And so those paid speakers, although it might just be less than five majorly paid speakers on your agenda, sometimes a lot fewer, maybe just one, uh, the weight that they carry compared to your other speakers is uh, second to none. So it sounds like, uh, and this has kind of been our experience and observations in the market, that most conferences, typically your keynotes are paid, typically your workshop and breakout presenters are not. Is that typically the case with yours, or do you have any events where your workshop or breakout presenters are paid? Yeah, I tell you, we have uh, a rule of thumb, which is really three tiers, and depending on that contribution. And starting with the keynoters, obviously, they're going to be reimbursed for any travel expenses, and they're going to have a speaker fee. Our middle tier, which you see a lot of speakers, is those who are willing to come without a speaking fee, perhaps their company, or in our case, if a member cooperative has a stake in that particular subject, uh, they're not looking for compensation to just share their story. But they don't want to be, they don't want to have to go into a hole financially for travel reimbursements and and those kind of things. Now, that bottom tier is kind of a hybrid tier. And it's going to pick up people like maybe a sponsoring company who wants to get a word out. They want to maximize their presence at your event, and they will also serve as thought leaders, uh, thought leadership. They would uh, be able to offer some relevant content, and well, we'll give you the platform for that. There's really no financial considerations there. 
Gotcha. Okay. So let's kind of zoom out for a second here. Whenever it comes to, you've got, again, a bunch of events and conferences. Sounds like the majority of the speakers that you would be paying for would be keynote speakers. So there are certainly uh, no shortage of keynote speakers or quality speakers that you may consider for any given event, for any given size. So what's kind of the process for you? You have an event coming up. How do you kind of go through uh, in terms of how far out you begin planning? What are you looking for? Kind of talk us through that process from your perspective. Sure. So depending on the size of the event, you know, we might have contracts out several years in advance. 18 months in advance seems to be the sweet spot for a conference that's maybe four to 500 people. And so you know where you're going to be the next year when you get to that year's event. That's a big deal is keeping the momentum going, letting people know where you're going to be the next year, particularly those dates. When you have that information locked in, you can get pretty granular in your efforts to secure a keynote speaker. And so usually my thought process is try to get as early as you can on that headliner. First of all, you've got save the dates that need to go out, whether through e-marketing or an actual postcard or brochure. And while most of your program is not baked at that point, you can have a headliner or two that's just going to get people thinking. It's going to give a little bit more backing uh, behind your save the date initiatives and looking forward uh, publications. And so that's going to serve you well to be very early with those headliners uh, as you can. Now, on the other side, I typically will get fairly close to a conference without filling in at least one of the general sessions. And that is because during your conversations with your advisory committees, if you have that support team, having conversations with the attendees who are coming, recommendations come at all times. And putting yourself in a corner too early could backfire on you. So I guess this is a twofold piece of advice is get that headliner as soon as you can and then leave some flexibility as close to the conference as you can without jeopardizing your program or making a hole that you can't fill just for that kind of hybrid, that variable speaker, that X opportunity that you might get in there. So what does that timeline typically look like? So in terms of the first kind of headline keynote speaker that you would have, how far out are you typically booking them? And then for that last remaining slot that you're filling that sounds, you know, semi last minute ish, how close in do you typically wait before you you move forward on that? Sure. So on the uh, being the early bird, I would say about 12 to 14 months if you can. Obviously, if you get beyond that 12 months, you're starting to uh, fix the agenda for the next year while you're executing one you know, that's coming up in just a few weeks. So usually I'll at least get that that year's program out of the way. So 10 to 12 months, I think, is very safe for your headliners. You're obviously not sending out save-the-date information. You're quite uh, marketing that event yet that close to your, your event that just took place. And so that 10 to 12 months to lock them in and 8 to 10 months to get your save-the-date information out it is pretty healthy on that front side. What I found is a lot of the high demand keynote speakers need at least a year. And if you're within a year, you should go ahead and expect there to be at least a shoulder event on either side of your dates that they might be going to. Uh, We've had situations where we just have to change around a session or two. We don't want to. But if you really want that speaker, you might have to when you're within a year and they're very booked on their calendar. Right. And uh, on the uh, on the other side, getting close to the conference, yeah, you know, usually 30 days is way too close. And yeah. another thing is housing also fills up for you. So unless you want to go ahead and lock in a few speaker rooms, put them in your back pocket, housing will also be place of stress for the event planner 
if you don't have speakers, but you know your hotel rooms are booked and those that you're saving are being asked for, you know, every day. So 30 days gets a little tight. But what you're doing is you're just giving yourself some flexibility to move things around where you don't have to tell somebody no or, or, or readjust the schedule. But there are always opportunities that come that you just didn't see before. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So you're beginning the process looking at reviewing potential speakers. And actually, just to zoom out one more level here, in terms of context, what's kind of the general fee range that you're typically looking at for speakers? Because I mean, obviously, as, as we both know, this can vary wildly, but are we looking in the, you know, five to 10 range or in the, the 10 to 20 range or way up from there? What where are you, where are you typically looking? Sure. To me, the best rule of thumb is kind of the size of the audience and what is your, you know, registration revenue for the conference, but more importantly, how much money are you putting into the general session? For example, you know, we'll spend a good amount on the general session AV. The production, everything looks good, it's smooth. We got a team of about six to eight AV people on a medium-sized conference to help pull this off. I'm not going to put that money, which can easily get close to six figures uh, for a large event, and then not also invest in the the content and the quality of speaker that is on that stage. And so you're looking at your registration revenue of how much people have invested to be in that room, how much have you tangibly invested in that room, and balancing that out with someone who's going to be able to pull that stage off for you. And so there's a balance there. For me, in a medium-sized conference, which would be about 500 people or so, my headliner might get to 30 to 40. Okay. My second tier leader might be about 15 to 17 and maybe a 10,000 or 12, five. And then if there's four general sessions, I might try to get six to 10. And so if you add those numbers up, I mean, you're, you're almost 75 K to a hundred thousand in general session speakers Yeah. now, well, which is a lot of money. That's a lot of investment, especially when that's just four out of sometimes 20 to 25 sessions. So one mm-hmm. tactic I'll do to help maximize that money invested in those keynote speakers is to do a deeper dive with them after the general session. Some speakers might tag on an extra 5,000 on there. Some people will do it because they're already there and, and they appreciate the partnership. And you'll actually get a breakout session out of that. You know, you'll do a deeper dive with them. You'll give some access to the keynote speaker in that breakout form that maybe the attendees wouldn't have otherwise. And you're able to fill in, you know, some additional speaking roles to try to stretch your dollar there. Right. Makes sense. So as you're beginning that process of your 12 plus months out, and you've got, let's say, three to four slots that you're looking to fill. And it sounds like you're, you're filling them from a wide range of from six to 10 on the low end and 30 plus on the upper end. How do you begin that process? Is that a committee that's involved? Is that primarily you? Are you just send everybody out like, hey, here, you know, we're looking for a good leadership speaker this year. Or we're looking for someone who's conquered some type of obstacle. Or are we looking for someone who has some type of connection back into the energy space in terms of what it is that you guys do? So how do you begin that process of reviewing speakers? And what is it that you're, you're usually looking for in that process? Sure. I tell you, in my experience, it seems that the program manager, the conference content and program manager will spend, let's say, an afternoon on a Friday and just start to research some speakers on their own. They may not even mention this to some of their you know, team members or their committee 
you know, in our case, our committees uh, meet three times a year and they're spread across about 15 states. And so you kind of, in my experience, I've seen conference managers, they just do this in the quietness of their own office to just look around and see who catches their attention. So to me, it's a very individual decision up front. Once you get a few options, you get uh, a speaker bucket, as I'll call it, then you go to your committees and say, hey, what do you think about this? Now, obviously, the committee or your team, your members, your audience, whoever your target audience is, they're going to give you feedback on what topics they might want to hear. Your conference itself would help uh, lead to that. But uh, the first thought I have is it's fairly individual, at least for me, on the quietness of a Friday afternoon to start researching speakers to then be presented to a larger team. So it sounds like you you may have a collection of individuals who are going out, kind of doing their own research. Everybody gets together, kind of pools their ideas on, you know, here's some people I found. Here's what I, you know, what I like about them or here's what makes them intriguing. So for any individual, even, you know, like in your case, Josh, if, if you're starting that process for yourself personally and you're saying, okay, today I'd like to find five potential speakers. Is that typically you just going to Google or going to YouTube or how do you, how would you begin that process of, of looking for speakers? Sure. Well, I mean, you obviously have the speaker bureaus that are going to have convenient user interfaces to take a look at a lot of speakers. Mm-hmm. I have found luck there. I have not found luck there. One thing I'll do is I maybe will search the topic of that general session. If the topic's on technology or if it's, in our case, a specific area of the energy industry, let's say renewables or something like that, I will search that topic and to see who's talking about it right now. Is there books? Are there podcasts? Are there webinars? Who are there uh, local stories? Who's talking about this and who's making the most buzz now? Because you got to remember if you're locking people in, it's a year after you lock them in that they're actually speaking. And in the energy industry and in the technology space, as many of us know, uh, as American consumers, that is going to change fast. And right. so you don't want to pigeonhole yourself in content that's already 12 months behind. So finding those influencers in that topic space organically can sometimes uncover some pretty good partnerships, bloggers, website creators. You might see somebody, you know, even on PBS that they'll bring on. Uh, maybe you'll hear somebody of a podcast like we're on here with Grant. Uh, you'll just see who's bubbling up organically. And sometimes you'll find some really good partnerships there. Is there, it sounds like a, you know, the, a lot of what you guys would do would just kind of be things that, that come on your radar via either word of mouth or referral or recommendation or someone that's kind of randomly came across your radar. Speaking from a, a speaker's perspective, that can be very difficult to reverse engineer in terms of like, how do I get in front of decision makers and event planners at the right time when that Friday afternoon and everyone's cozied up in their office and they're doing that search that I happen to, to come across their radar? So is there anything that speakers can do, should do or shouldn't do to proactively be on your radar? And, and how do we do that without being annoying or a pain? Obviously, you have a lot of things happening. And so we'd like to get on your radar without being annoying. So is there anything that speakers can do to proactively be one of those people that you begin to think about? Sure. I'll just mention a few basic things. I don't think this will be a surprise to anybody, but speakers that uh, do not have any videos, uh, I usually won't even click on the profile. Speakers who have videos and they're about 15 to 20 years old, I'm already going to consider, do I even want to reach out for a more recent one? 
So I think videos ha- hold a lot of weight if, if we're in the profile environment. Also, speakers that do not have a clear price range. Uh, those who, you know, it, it's kind of like when you're on uh, a BestBuy.com and it says add to cart to see the price. You know, I'd rather scroll on and see a price. So it's a similar way of, of that. Video, I want to go ahead and see it. I can tell a lot from a video and I can tell a lot if the video's old or not. And then also how much is someone like that in the video going to cost me? I mean, this is happening within seconds because after a while you can view several hundred speakers just by advancing the page a few times and you're already fatigued. Right. And so uh, those profiles need that. I will often go to the person's website after I have found them to learn more. But like you said, it's hard to reverse engineer putting your website in front of the event planner's face. And so I think reaching beyond your own platforms and blogging, contributing to articles, finding who else is making noise about the topics that you're, you're sharing as a keynoter and trying to get into that circle with some content, even tweets and hashtags as well. I've mm-hmm. found speakers just by using hashtags on Instagram to see who's tagging about this and what are their influencers. You know, of course, you're being risky. Those people may not be corporate speakers, but sometimes there'll be magazines that will highlight somebody. So I think getting the message that you have in other channels that might be adjacent to where that event planner is looking it could be just that next step beyond just the speaker profile. Yeah, that's one thing we we hear a lot from speakers. And I know even in my own experience as a speaker, it's, you know, sometimes it is you did an interview or you spoke of something a couple of years ago or you wrote an article or whatever, and the right person saw it at the right time and they passed it on to someone else. And someone heard you speak four years ago at some random event. And it's not necessarily one individual thing that you did, but oftentimes it's kind of the the momentum of a variety of different things that you did that allowed you to to get on someone's radar at the right time, which forces speakers to think about the longevity of the business, but also it can be challenging because there's not necessarily, hey, if you do this one thing, that's how you get on on Josh's radar. But it, it could be any number of things that allow a speaker to get on your radar at the right time. Now, one thing that you mentioned was the importance of video. So whenever you are watching, you mentioned like age is an important thing in terms of a video that's not out of date, but how long are the videos that you're typically watching? Do you prefer to see a speaker in a variety of different environments or versus like one continuous clip? What do you look for that checks some boxes for you on those videos? Sure. Well, I tell you one continuous clip of actually on stage in front of an audience for me speaks more volumes than a 120 second promo that's slick with fast cuts, and I'm not really able to get into that room environment. You know, yeah. really a video should be a sample uh, as if you were sitting on the front row like you would be in 12 months. So to me, that that holds some weight. Now, what I've seen people do that's been effective and, and things that I've done with keynote partners that I uh, partner with is to have a little promo piece, you know, the slick, the, the edgy, what excites people as maybe the first few seconds of the video, and then get right into a live option a live recording so that we can see. And that could be several cuts. You know, it doesn't have to be one continuous, but it should be one continuous example of being in front of people. You want to see the stage command, of course. You want to see the the speed and the rate that they're talking. Keynotes usually are 55 to 60 minutes. Uh, But if you're following up that keynoter with another keynoter or with an extensive panel, you want to be sure that the person isn't talking too fast or too slow. So you're just, you're looking for a sample to see if, to see if uh, it fits. 
how long are, are most of the videos that you would want to see? Is there something where you, you click play, you look at the timestamp in the lower corner and realize, ah, this is way too long. There's no way I'm going to watch this versus like, yeah, this is the right amount of time that I've, I'm going to tune in for. Yeah, I think three minutes is perfect. Okay. I, I wouldn't go over five and I wouldn't go under 60 seconds. Of course, if it's longer than three to five, you know, I probably will, will bounce after, after a while. Uh, or I tell you, if I'm, if I'm enjoying, I'll keep watching the whole thing and, you know, be inspired to, uh, you know, see if there's something else the speaker can offer beyond just what I was initially looking for. So I'd, I'd say two to, two to three is going to be enough to get your message across. So you begin this process, let's say the committee comes back and uh, everyone pulls in some, uh, some different speaker options. Let's say you narrow it down to, you know, five to seven to 10 different potential speakers. Is there anything that a speaker can do at that point where, all right, the committee's meeting, I know I'm on the radar, I've made it that far. Is there anything that a speaker can do to just further impress the committee or to help bump their name to the top? Is there anything that you've seen speakers do that has made a difference for you or on the contrary, something that a speaker's done that's just kind of rubbed the committee the wrong way that speakers need to avoid? Right. In my case, I will try to at least have a 15 minute conversation at the least with the keynote speaker before I really take that profile to the committee because I want to truly represent that keynoter story. And so I want a little bit of contact with them first, if I can, so that I can be a good mouthpiece for what's going on. There's also another reason why I do that. I want to see how invested that keynote speaker is going to be in knowing my audience. Uh, I'm coming from a niche industry, the energy industry, and then it boils down further to the non-for-profit community-focused energy industry, which our electric cooperatives would, would be in, the leaders in that field. And so I have certain terminology. I have certain ways of saying things. And I'm not the only one. You know, all companies are going to avoid the word customer and say client, or in my case, avoid the word customer and say member. Just those little teeny things. Maybe we'll call those the holy grails in each industry. Little things that the keynoter can learn about your audience. It doesn't take much. It's very little effort to customize just a little bit of the experience. If I can sense that a speaker is willing and invested to do that, and ask the right questions to get to know my audience before I even pitch it, uh, they go to the top of my list. My hesitancy or, you know, having to have faith that a speaker is really going to pull it off for me is how connected with the audience is he going to be, how knowledgeable of the audience. In other words, people know that I hired the speaker. I'm sitting in that room with them and they know that I hired them. Are they going to see it as a transaction or are they going to see it as a partnership? Yeah, And just that little bit of extra effort to make a customized experience where you know some of the terminology and make people feel at home, make people feel that, hey, you've been working with us for years, even if you haven't, I think goes a long way. And so to answer your question, Grant, if I can sense that investment and partnership is at least willing and the right questions are being asked about the audience, that means a lot. It puts me at ease. Well, and one of the things that you touch on is uh, something that we remind speakers all the time is that as a speaker, we are an extension of the event planner who hired us. And so in a lot of ways, a part of our job is sure to get up on stage and to present solid content and to entertain and engage an audience. But part of what we're trying to do is trying to make the event planner look good and justify their decision of putting you on stage. Because if you bring in a speaker that does an amazing job, then Josh looks like the hero. You look like the hero versus if someone comes in and does a, a, 
a horrible job. Everybody's looking to you like, why did you pick this person? And so part of what we try to do is we have to make sure that we are, are making you look good and that we're, we're good to work with. So I'm curious then from that standpoint, you let's say you, you've had the committee meeting, you figured out your speaker, the event comes and goes. There's part of the speaker's role is obviously the the main the main stage part, the part where we're up in front of people. Uh, but there's also the off the stage part. So is there anything that a speaker can do or should be doing that creates a, a better client experience? That's the type of thing that makes you want to work with them again, to refer them, to bring them back, to recommend them to others. What can a speaker do that, that just really stands out in your mind? Sure. I, I don't think that uh, it has to be you know, very complicated at all in post. I think just keeping in touch is a lot. I mean, each conference manager just kind of has their bucket of speakers that they've come across. Like I said, probably in the quietness of their office on a Friday afternoon, but we certainly respect one another's opinions. And so if I'm stuck or need a recommendation, I'll call one of my fellow conference managers and say, hey, you know, what did you guys do? Who came across your path? And more times than not, the other conference manager will say, hey, so-and-so actually reached out to me not too long ago. And so that means a lot too. Is there still a partnership here or was that just a transaction? Right. So I think following up, following up obviously for satisfaction, you know, having a follow-up call is, is very good too. And if you can offer something to the conference manager that they're able to share, once the event is over, there's a lot of effort to make the dust settle and get those surveys out. If the speaker can provide the conference manager with just a one-click, maybe it's a page they share. Uh, maybe the speaker's website has a recap of that event mm-hmm. that a conference manager can then share that URL to their constituents, to their fellow peers, and say, hey, you know, they've got me trigger ready over here to share what we did. It continues to make me look good as a conference manager and continues to spread the message uh, of the speaker. So once you've hired a speaker, you've worked with a speaker, you've had, let's assume that you've had a generally a good positive experience. One of the things that you mentioned at the beginning is that you hire speakers at all different levels and all different ranges. So anywhere from, you know, six to 10,000 on the low end and, and 30 to 35 plus on the upper end. How do you, at the end of the day, you've hired a speaker, you've, you've paid them a significant amount of money. They came in and they delivered. How do you determine if it was worth it or not? How is the is the thirty or thirty five thousand dollars speaker five six seven times as good of a speaker on stage than the six to ten thousand dollars speaker? Or how do you determine in your mind whether the the value is there? I have seen speakers that are five thousand dollars blow the socks off of somebody who's thirty five thousand. Hmm. And I'm thinking of a particular example here. To me, when you're paying thirty five forty thousand dollars for a speaker to be there, you're actually making that investment in your marketing. Yeah. Of course, you want them to be the on-site alpha and actually b- blow everybody's socks off. Or maybe there's name recognition or something. But really, to he- the headliner's trying to get people at that conference. Yeah. And so that investment might as well come out of your marketing budget and not your speaker budget. Because it, it would actually be, it would kind of be a funny exercise to put a 35K speaker on stage next to a five and see, you know, guess who? Or like the newlywed game, who's the 35K? <laughs> So I don't think, no, I don't think it's a five to seven times better. Now, of course, there'd be situations where you could, no doubt about it. But I think you're looking for name recognition at that sort of cost, or there's some sort of uh, a visibility that people might happen to recognize that person's name. And you're making that investment to have some familiarity when your attendees get there. Oh, yeah, I know that keynote speaker. 
Right. Of course, to get a household name, you know, you're talking a whole lot more than 40 to 50. You know, you're in the one hundred to $200,000 keynote speaker range there. And if that's the case, I, I've got to get some sponsors to help me out there, which is also a good way to do that. I tell you, I've seen speakers before partner with companies inside the energy industry, somehow partner with them and say, hey, I'll do your event. And if you sponsor me at this other event, you know, I'll do a meet and greet at the booth or something. There are ways that maybe you can come to the table with some financial options uh, yeah. just from partnerships that you might have with companies who are also going to that conference, who are also pouring money in and might want some additional visibility and recognition by tagging their name to the speaker too. It's a very good point that uh, the, the more money that you're spending on a speaker, typically um, it's part of their job, their job becomes less about content and uh, not that the content doesn't matter, certainly does, but it becomes more about can they put butts in seats ultimately and yes. can you get a, a return on that investment of, I, you know, if you spent $40,000 on a speaker, but they drove $100,000 worth of ticket sales, uh, maybe a no brainer for you. So to wrap up, Again, Josh, you, you have been on the other side of the table as an event planner who's brought in a wide range of speakers at a wide range of fees over the course of your career. We have thousands of speakers listening right now who are at all different levels of their career, those that are getting started, who are trying to get their first paid gig, and those who are in the multiple five-figure category. So what would you say to speakers as an event planner of, of any other final words of wisdom that uh, speakers can be doing to help make your job and life easier? Absolutely. Those who I've raised the flag for the most are those who are usually around ten to $15,000. And even if that's underpriced, to underpromise and overdeliver goes a long way here. And another thing I've seen is that if there are other companies in that audience and they want to bring you to their event that's later that year or the next year, they're going to contact me. And so if I have information that I can easily provide to them, and I can give them a price that's 10 to 15, usually they'll bite. So if you want word of mouth to work for you at these events, keeping it in the 10 to $15,000 range as, as best you can, those are the people who actually get rehired based off of those who are in the audience. Because you're not speaking to an audience of event planners that have big conferences, large conferences. You're usually speaking to companies that have an all-staff meeting every year. Yeah. And their budget's already set. And so I've seen those people, there's one speaker who has spoken for uh, my members up to 10 times. They've been around after my event for them. And so I think that that fee is a sweet spot. You know, maybe if if you're not able to do that because of such demand, I understand. Uh, And then empowering the event planner to share your story easily without too much effort to those people that uh, of their network goes a long way. Well, and you make a great point too that, uh, I mean, any speaker would love to be in the, you know, 40, 50 plus range, but obviously we know that that's, that's not going to be the case for most speakers, but it's also the realistically, it's not going to be the case for most events in terms of their budgets. So my guess is you're going to hire a lot more five to 10 or even sub five speakers versus the, you know, the, the $40,000 plus speakers. So there's just, there's not as many opportunities there, but there are ample opportunities for an event that says we have $5,000. We can't, we would love to have a 30 or $40,000 speaker. We just can't afford it. But we have $5,000 and we want the best possible value for our dollar. And uh, so you, there's certainly plenty of opportunities that exist to fill those slots in as well. Yep, Grant, let me mention this just real quick that I have hired people who are sub five almost eight times. Hmm. And so they're a $40,000 speaker. They just had to come and uh, be with me for at least eight times. Yeah, very true. <laughs> so, 
Very true. Yeah, it goes another, a long way. And another good example there of just uh, being really, really good to work with. You know, you mentioned, you know, this speaker who worked with you eight times or 10 times. And over the course of, a, of a, someone's career of working with a, a client multiple times, it can be... It, can still pay off in, in a lot of different ways. So uh, Josh, this has been incredibly helpful. I want to be respectful of your time. So thank you so much for uh, spending a few minutes chatting with us here today. This has been really, really enjoyable. Thank you, Grant. I appreciate it. And I'm uh, happy to be part of the Speaker Lab community. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with event planner Josh McGee. Just really, really good stuff there. And it's always helpful to understand and hear what's happening on the other side as they're making the decision-making process and working with speakers and what makes speakers that they want to work with again versus those that they're like, yeah, we kind of overpaid for that one. So some really good stuff there from Josh. Like I mentioned, if you would like uh, like to have a conversation about how we can help you and work with you in your speaking business, how to help you create a repeatable system to consistently find and book paid speaking gigs. We'd love to have that conversation. We'd love to chat with you. So feel free to apply for one of our strategy sessions. You can do that by going over to thespeakerlab.com slash apply. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash apply. There you can have a a free consultation call with one of our team members to learn more about what you're looking for. And uh, again, those calls are free, but they are uh, limited. So we'd love to hop on a call with you though and, and learn what you're looking for and how we might be able to help you out. So again, stop by and check it out over at thespeakerlab.com slash apply. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.